0: In the United States, drug rehab costs so much money. In fact, it costs so much money that it's cheaper to stay an addict than to get clean in this country. And I think that's a huge issue. So I think that we have a lot of things that we need to work out in the healthcare system, including uh, reducing the cost of substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment before we could ever tackle something like that. But I do think a priority is getting people out of jail for a minor drug possession. Um, and especially for cannabis possession, I don't understand how we have 30 states where cannabis is legal, and we still have people in jail for cannabis crimes It does not make any sense to me. Um, and I, you know, applaud states where when they legalize, they put in the law that people that were in jail for cannabis-related crimes were going to be automatically released.
1: Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. Ready for a mind bender? Today we're talking cannabis psychedelics and making people into their best healthiest version of themselves, while also possibly curing cancer. Today, we've got Dr. Michelle Ross on the program. Dr. Ross is a neuroscientist and health coach with a passion on helping people overcome chronic illness and achieve their best life ever. She's both a cannabinoid medicine researcher and cannabis patient after being diagnosed with fibromyalgia, neuropathy, and chronic pelvic pain. In 2013, she founded the Endocannabinoid Deficiency Foundation, later known as the Impact Network, which is the 1st nonprofit to provide research and advocacy on cannabis for women's health. Dr. Ross is an accomplished writer, having authored several best-selling books including vitamin weed and train your brain to get thin and she's been a guest expert on tv on radio shows including the doctors the ricky lake show and kfi she sits on numerous medical advisory boards and has been very active in helping to shape drug policy especially concerning psychedelics and cannabis and other things that have high efficacy rates. She's been a speaker at conferences all over the world, including CanX, O Cannabis, Telluride Mushroom Festival, Cannabis Science Conference, and many, many others. And she used her 15 minutes of fame being the first well-known scientist on a reality TV show, Big Brother, to promote stand-up to cancer and other health-related topics. Dr. Ross is a really interesting researcher who is living and breathing her work and has some pretty awesome perspectives to share. In today's conversation, we discuss the true cost of illegal cannabis, what Michelle learned about addiction, mental health, and healing, America's drug problem, thanks to pharma, and how we can solve it, how the prison system incentivizes evil, the reason why convicts can't escape the prison grind, and how cannabis and psychedelics can be used to shift our entire understanding of the brain and mental health for the better. And don't forget the sad truth about school shooters. And now without further ado, I give you Michelle Ross. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously, disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the
0: program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So the first question, you do a ton with cannabis. What's the story?
0: So actually, I was a hardcore anti-drug scientist. I grew up in front of crack House in New Jersey, and I never thought I would grow up to be a cannabis scientist. Uh, actually, my very first paper when I was a PhD student was on how cannabinoids could grow brain cells. And so that got the little light bulb, you know, uh, glowing. And it made me think about, well, what else don't we know about cannabinoids and cannabis, because we've been taught for years that cannabis is bad, that it's one of those illegal drugs of abuse. And in fact, we find that is so helpful for so many different conditions, especially mental health and neurological conditions. And that actually stimulated my own journey into finding more about it and then using it for my own health. I have fibromyalgia, neuropathy, I have a whole laundry list of different health issues. Uh, And in fact, I can't even walk or use my arms without cannabis. It's the only medication that works for me. So not only did I learn about it, but because it had such a personal impact on my life, I decided to make it my whole career. So, you know, little Uh, Michelle from Island, New Jersey, never thought she was going to be a drug scientist. I thought I was going to what? You know, uh, cure all drug addiction, and then said, uh, "Here I am working for cannabis. So it's it's been pretty pretty amazing journey.
1: And you grew up close to the opiate capital of the world.
0: Yeah, actually, I was right down the street from Merck. Uh, my dad actually worked at a General Motors plant, a car plant, right next to the Merck factory. So it was funny because I was the first kid in my my family to even go to college, and they all thought I was just going to work at the the auto plant. And I, I was actually telling them, oh, "Okay, I'm going to be the president of Merck. <laughs> I'm going to help you know make pharmaceuticals to help you know." heal the world. And then a little bit later down that path, what I realized that pharmaceuticals weren't the answer to everything. And that there's a lot of ancient wisdom in um, plants and other substances that are really where the, the key things that are, are going to be able to heal the trauma, the pain, the chronic illness that our, our world is seeing right now.
1: And it's such a better alternative to alcohol and some of the other drugs that people have. I, I don't want to always praise. I'm not a big marijuana person. I've used it a couple of times, don't worry, it's in Europe. So it was totally <laughs> technically gray zone. But it's a, it's really interesting how much of a pushback you see both from regulators and pharma. Is that is that just regulators being bought by pharma companies?
0: You know, it, it's... It's hard to say. Of course, you're going to lose a lot of money in alcohol sales and pharmaceutical sales when you legalize cannabis. We've seen that in Colorado. We've seen that California. Any states where they've legalized, uh, there has been a decrease in alcohol use and opioid use and other prescription drug use. But you know what we're seeing is actually that alcohol. Big like alcohol is buying into cannabis. They're acquiring cannabis companies. They're investing in it, and we're seeing this heavily in Canada right now, uh, where companies that you know like have the Corona beer brand are investing investing into cannabis. In terms of pharmaceuticals, it's interesting because there are pharmaceutical companies that have been doing cannabinoid research for years. So one of their issues was that it's really difficult to patent a plant. So it's very easy to patent a single chemical, and that's why we've had prescription THC as Marinol in the United States. We've had prescription CBD, but to patent the whole plant is just uh, a no go in the United States and most countries. And so most pharmaceutical companies haven't been going after that. But think about it, like most Americans have a chronic illness. Most Americans, you know, and, and I don't know about the other countries, but we're, we're really a sick country here in the U.S. And most people are on multiple prescriptions and it is a cash cow. You know, we don't really worry about getting people off of prescriptions. We give them one prescription and keep laying it on to help manage all their side effects from the drugs we're giving them. And when you have one drug like cannabis that can actually manage multiple symptoms here, you could treat something with just one prescription and it's going to be less costly, less dangerous. And in terms of, you know, using a patient as a customer, it's not a very good business model.
1: (laughs) It's not, yeah, yeah, certainly not. The healthcare systems. the healthcare system's whack. But in terms of when people like to bring up things that sound similar to a magic bullet, I always like to push back because if it helps you gain weight and helps you lose weight, someone's confused there. So talk to me a little bit more about the science of cannabis and the science of some of the drugs you've studied.
0: Sure. So the endocannabinoid system is actually the largest neurotransmitter system in your brain and body. It controls all the other neurotransmitter systems. And to break that down, since I am a neuroscientist, (laughs) you know, I don't want to go over anyone's head. A neurotransmitter is the signal between two brain cells. So that's how they communicate. So be able to send a message to say, okay, I want to move this muscle or I want to, you know, preserve this memory. Whatever is happening in your brain is mediated by these neurotransmitters. So there's all different types of those. There's dopamine, there's serotonin, there's glutamate, there's GABA, there's all these different signals. And all these signals are controlled by the endocannabinoid system. So it's like the fine-tuned dial that decides how much dopamine is released, how much serotonin is released, et cetera. And all those neurotransmitters decide whether you eat, whether you have interested in, whether you're interested in sex, whether You're going to remember something, learn something. It's literally every single piece and process in our body is controlled by the endocannabinoid system with the exception of breathing, which is really fascinating because that's why we can't overdose on cannabis because cannabinoid receptors aren't in the brain region, the brainstem that controls breathing. So opioids kill us because it does depress breathing, but cannabinoids can't kill you because it can never interfere with breathing. So that's, that's an interesting little factoid there, but the endocannabinoid system is just so complex. We're learning all the different receptors that are involved there. We're learning all about our own natural endocannabinoids that bind to these receptors and you know we thought that there was just the cannabinoid type 1 receptor CB1 receptor or CB2 receptor. We're finding all these different random receptors. Literally every month there's new receptors being found or potentially being explored and it's really fascinating. Uh, the plant itself has so many phytocannabinoids or plant-based cannabinoids. So there's over 111 phytocannabinoids in the plant. And when you were talking about how can this one plant increase appetite or decrease appetite, it's because these cannabinoids can have very different effects and act on different receptors in the brain and body. For example, THC is the most well-known cannabinoid, and that's the one that makes people feel high. It's the one that causes the munchies. It helps relieve pain. But there's other minor cannabinoids in some strains or products. For example, there's one called thc and that one actually decreases appetite. So it's all about what the mix of these chemicals are in the product or strain that You're looking at um, or using. So this is what's fascinating about this, and what's so confusing about this for pharmaceutical purposes, or you know, for drug making purposes, is that you have this plant that has 111 different cannabinoids, and then it has all these other chemicals too. How do you harness that and then make standardized drugs, right, without pulling each one of these out? So it's a it's a very complicated thing, and this is why that there's this whole strain game within cannabis where you know there's different strains and different combinations of cannabinoids and these other chemicals called terpenes that work for different people. Like you could have 10 patients with the same disorder. For example, eye fibromyalgia, so we'll just say 10 patients with fibromyalgia. They'll all use a different product to treat their disease, which is, you know not the standard of care usually, although you know with a complex disease like fibromyalgia, there are a couple options. but usually it's not this patient needs this cocktail, of cannabinoids and terpenes and things like that. It's very complex and again, this is why Doctors don't quite understand what to do with this. Uh, the cannabis industry is still confused by this. We haven't quite caught up with uh, AI and some of the technology that we're harnessing in other fields of medicine. Because as unlike the other fields of medicine, like serotonin, like we know what the serotonin receptors are. And, you know, we've established that years ago. Here we're dealing with something where every single day the you know we're discovering new receptors. We're discovering new endocannabinoids, and that completely changes the algorithms or you know, um, the treatment protocols, right? If you're, you just found out that there's another cannabinoid receptor and then, you know, all of your work you've done for the last 10 years is suddenly like thrown up in the air. So it's, it's definitely uh, an interesting, but frustrating field.
1: Is a big part of the problem that healthcare tries to simplify things. So we recently had Dr. Bill Walsh on the program, the Walsh mm-hmm. Research Institute. Okay. They, look, they looked into 50 of the past school shootings in the U.S., Forty-three of the fifty, the kids were recently put on SSRIs mm-hmm. that did not previously have these type of symptoms, and it, it's and first of all, what the fuck? Why is that not something that's more commonly in the know? And yeah. is it something where people try to overly simplify, and by overly simplifying, they actually make the situation worse?
0: Goodness, um, you know, I've seen an epidemic now of us treating children with. SSRIs, um, anti- anti-anxiety drugs, even opioid drugs. And we're so concerned about the effects of CBD or cannabis on the developing brain, but these other drugs have clear changes to brain chemistry. I mean, your brain doesn't stop developing until the age of 25. So, you know, putting a child on an SSRI may put them at risk for being depressed for the rest of their life. Whereas there are some, you know, methods, whether it's diet change, therapy, et cetera, that could be a lot more effective. But the initial treatment is always, here's a pill, it'll make everything better. And, you know, children have have survived for, you know, centuries without SSRIs. And here we have, I think we have a crisis now where I've seen seeing young people that have been on these pills Uh, since they were, you know, six or seven, and they're not okay. And they seem to be the most treatment resistant in terms of, you know, they've they've already been on the gamut of antidepressants. And so when you're in your 20s, and you've already tried everything, you know, what else is there for you? There's a lot of things that are concerning, uh, especially, you know, having looked at the role of antidepressants as a neuroscientist, uh, in my research, it's just, it's disturbing to see see, uh, pediatric use of these drugs. And I don't think we're going in the right direction at all.
1: We're definitely going in the wrong direction. And it's all getting more expensive as well. Do you think part of the problem? So you brought up how there were so many different aspects and benefits of cannabis. And do you think part of the problem is to accept that plants are medicine is also to accept that anything you put in your mouth is medicine, i.e. food?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, So food as medicine is such a foreign concept in modern medicine. It's something that, you know, nutrition isn't really even taught in medical school. So this concept that, yes, the endocannabinoid system isn't taught in school, well, there's many things that are not taught in medical school that are really key to human health and human mental health. I really think that nutrition is preventative medicine. We could be treating the obesity epidemic, the mental health epidemic, the addiction epidemic, all these through preventative medicine. And it really starts in what you put in your mouth. And I think that we have such a process of control and we have this role of a doctor as gatekeeper, right? So- In order to take care of our health, we have to visit a doctor or God who then decides what we deserve to be uh, prescribed. And we take those pills and then, you know, under their direction, we get better. We don't actually have this concept of, you know, the mother or, you know, family member. Wise family members are the ones that actually know how to treat different illnesses or problems in the family. So we used to have women as healers. And I think that we've gone away from that. We've gone away from food as medicine. We've gone away from you know mushrooms, cannabis, and other healing uh, plants that have been available in nature. We've gone away from using those things. And we are dependent on pharmaceuticals. it's almost like we can't even figure out how to heal ourselves, or that's not our first go-to. A pill is our first go-to, and we've seen that to disastrous effects uh, in the United States and other countries. So Western medicine is uh, definitely causing more harm. And I think that a return back to ancient wisdom is really important, but combining that with, I think, modern technology, I think that we can do so many things. It's just, we really have to combine both of those things. And one of the most exciting things, I think, actually, in the cannabinoid medicine field was that they just discovered this type of moss. It was a liverwort, I believe, um, and they found a a new cannabinoid in it. So it was something like, like THC plus CBD in this moss. And indigenous people have been using this moss for years to, you know, for medical purposes and i think that what we're going to find out is that there's actually tons of other cannabinoids in plants it's not just cannabis. we just haven't tested it right so it's not that the cannabis plant is the only plant with cannabinoids it's literally we just haven't been searching and and when different cultures have been using medicine for years it's just crazy that we really haven't explored these things i think that there's so much um so much we we really need to find out definitely in south america and other countries Uh, you know, aerobatic medicine. We've been downplaying for years. I think that there is so much that we just don't know about these medicines people have been using for centuries. There's a reason why they've been using it. It's not, you know, not everything is anecdotal just because we haven't tested it. doesn't mean it doesn't work.
1: Well, speaking of the ubiquity of medicine, DMT is in pretty much everything, isn't it?
0: (laughs) I I don't think DMT is in everything. (laughs) You know, I'm not a DMT expert myself, although there is, I believe, a video that's like two two million uh, views of me talking about it uh, as a neuroscientist. Uh, I had a couple experiences with it myself. Yeah, no, I think it's only in the ayahuasca bark. It is in the human brain, but I'm not sure where else it is.
1: I've, I've heard it's in trace doses in almost all vegetables and foods, but it's not something that you process. So the reason why when you take ayahuasca, they add something else to, I don't totally understand it but they add something else to essentially block the blocker so that yeah uh, for, uh, for an analogy you can score a touchdown and it's yeah. a, a wild and crazy touchdown, but I know I know you're big on psychedelics for mental yeah. health. I wanted to know why.
0: Um, so for me, it really came down to personally experiencing that, and I think that you know that's the turning point for people with cannabis, with psychedelics, or anything. Um, I've struggled with PTSD, depression uh, for most of my life. I've had uh, some uh, significantly bad experiences and trauma, just like most people, unfortunately, have. And for me, uh, it was actually first experience. I actually use DMT as my first psychedelic, sort of the gateway, because it's something that you can Actually, control. So with DMT, the psychedelic experience is over when you open your eyes, and it's back on when you close them, and it only lasts, you know, about two to two to eight minutes. And for me, uh, especially with a background in my family of mental health, uh, serious mental health disorders, I was worried that I could take cannabis or I could take another psychedelic and perhaps instigate schizophrenia or something like that. So I really wanted to, you know, put put, uh, you know, my my toes in the psychedelic water and make sure that I was going to come out unscathed.
1: And so you were more worried about cannabis than dmt
0: i actually was yeah i didn't i didn't use cannabis until i was almost 30 and it was because of that we know that there's sort of a window for uh, schizophrenia onset and while cannabis doesn't and cause schizophrenia if you have the genetic background and you're going to develop it what happens is you could actually cause the onset to be several years earlier and we know that every year that you have that disease that you know is, is worse quality of life. So for me, I was a little nervous, and you know, I decided to be rather safe than sorry, and everything worked out in the end. But for me, DMT was a, a much more uh, controlled experience. And for me, I have an issue with losing control, which actually it's nice because cannabis helped me <laughs> let go of all that that and you know take more risks, uh, which was really good for both my career and my personal life. But um, DMT was really the gateway, and it just help, you know, it helps people understand that there's something else bigger than them out in this world. And for scientists, there's a lot of scientists that are atheists, right? You know, everything's got to be facts, black and white data, and DMT can help you show and see pieces of this universe that you can't quite understand, and you can't quite grasp, and it's okay. (laughs) You know, you don't have to know everything, and that's okay. So for me, um, it made me feel more comfortable exploring some of the other psychedelics that have longer half lives and and durations like mushrooms, for example, once you use mushrooms, you know, you can't really turn off that trip. Uh, Same with LSD, which I it was something I actually didn't use until uh, much more recently in my life. Uh, But it was definitely one of the most transformative experiences I've ever had. So I've been grateful for each and everything that I've tried. Uh, I haven't had any bad trips, which sounds crazy, um, because I know so many people that have But I think everything is about the right context, the right intentions and, you know, being able to work with people that can navigate those bad experiences if they do pop up.
1: Yeah, an analogy would be if you get drunk while you're angry, you're going to be angry drunk. If you're happy while you're drunk, you might start crying. But that's about it. What was, <laughs> that? what was the most transformational experience for you? What was walk through a little bit what it was like and what the takeaway was?
0: Okay. Um, so I would say the first time that I used mushrooms, the experience that I got was that I was connected with the world and that the world loved me and that I love the world because I am the world. It was very much that, you know, we're all the universe. We're all, you know, bits of stars type of thing. But for me, you know, being a child, uh, you know, in an abusive family, I didn't feel that love, you know, I felt like that love was missing my whole life. And it didn't matter how smart I was how many degrees I had. I just never felt like I could do enough to receive anyone's approval. In fact, I'm still estranged from my family. So for me um, to actually feel unconditional love from the universe was eye-opening. And from that day on, I was able to have respect for myself, be able to know that I didn't need any approval or external validation, that what I was doing was purposeful and what I chose to do and what made me happy was most important and that the, the world wanted me to be happy. So From that day on, I didn't need that external approval. And it was really important. And to be able to share that experience with others too was really important. I found as a neuroscientist, you know, it's funny, I hate, you know, using your doctor degree, but people listen to people that have experience with the brain and have done these things and, you know, have survived and actually have benefited from them. And so, you know, one of my favorite things is to be able to share these stories with people that are struggling. And there's a lot of people that are struggling with depression, anxiety, you know, or they're just hung up with their careers, right? There's these stumbling blocks. You can only get so far in life, you know, with low self-esteem or, or seeking approval, right? And once you're able to overcome that hump, all of a sudden the, the world is open to you. And so it was really important for me uh, to go out and use my experiences and what I've learned to go help uh, other people help explore themselves and gain meaning in this life. And in fact, I've been involved in some campaigns, too. I've I've worked a little bit with Denver for psilocybin, which is the group that's decriminalizing psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, They're actually voting on it in May 2019. So there is actually an active movement in the United States to decriminalize all drugs. We started with cannabis, but of course, uh, some of the other drugs we know are just as harmless and very beneficial and should be available in non-pharmaceutical form. So, you know, it's it's a crazy wild ride. I never thought I would start in cannabis. And then, you know, here I am. It's sort of funny because I get recognized as the drug scientist a lot or the scientist who uses drugs, which is funny because I'm like, I'm not, I actually don't use these drugs all the time. You know, they're context dependent. Um, and I really do see them as sacred medicine, but, you know, because I've been very vocal about psychedelic medications, you know. It's it's okay I'll take the label.
1: Do you see these as a replacement for God as we continue to disprove what we've thought in the past?
0: <laughs> you know, I I never want to say disprove God or prove God. I think that God is a very personal thing and it means so many different things to so many people. So I think for some people, it may change what they think about God, um, which could be actually very shocking. Um, It definitely did for me. And I think that's why it's really important that we do things like encourage people who use psychedelics, um, even if they're doing it recreationally, for example, to explore integration circles and to talk about their experience because you could have your entire worldview shattered. You know, if you're a, you know, a Christian and you end up going through an experience and you're like, that was definitely not a Christian God (laughs) experience that I just had. You know, what does that mean? And I think that people will figure out, you know, what God means to them. And I think that's really important. I think that modern medicine and, you know, modern culture hasn't really embraced that quest for meaning that is, is really, you know, key to the human experience. We all want to know why we're here, what we're doing, you know, if being here matters to anyone, you know, if there's a greater being that actually cares that we're here, we're a little ant, you know, in, a, in a, a sandbox that nobody cares about. I think that I can't answer those questions for anyone. And I encourage people that, you know, are um, looking for answers to explore psychedelics. They might find them there, they might not, but it's, it's a great starting point.
1: That was a very diplomatic answer for something. That <laughs> some you, think
0: you know, um, I, again, I, I can't answer for anyone, <laughs> including myself, you know, what the nature of God is. Um, the only person that you're kn- the only thing that knows that is an external being. So, I'm sure I'm going to still learn many things uh, throughout my years of life. And I look forward to finding and exploring more answers. So <laughs> that's, that's part of the the fun of the journey.
1: So I've heard a lot of Bible scholars attribute Moses's burning of the bush to that being a, a DMT trip.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, it, it may very well be, I think that sacred uh medicines uh from you know psychedelic mushrooms to you know ayahuasca habit practice for centuries. And you know it's sort of funny that we've gone sort of Puritan, you know, in the, in the last couple of centuries and our religious experiences really have taken you know away these psychedelic types of medicines. And and it's really been about controlling the perspective of uh you know attendees. You know, if we look at most of the You know, Christian religions, there's no psychoactive substances happening um, in any of them. But I think that, you know, when we look at all the other cultures, there's definitely uh, a focus on changing your mindset, changing your perspective. And I think that you know, modern Western culture could definitely benefit from that.
1: Especially given just the vast incarceration rate. Is this just the incentives are completely broken? How do, how do we fix this where we have, I think it's 3 million individuals in the US locked up, a ton of them just for having pot?
0: Oh my goodness. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking. And actually, I went to Portugal this year with Drug Policy Alliance, which is a fantastic organization and they looked at Portugal, right? So Portugal has decriminalized all the drugs. And in fact, if you're caught with, you know, any type of drug you're offered uh, free rehab, or you can be put in the system and ask like, do you need help getting a job? Is your drug use, you know, a problem. If it's not, you can be like on your merry way, apparently. (laughs) Uh, We went with the Minister of Health and all these things. And we they asked, you know, could we implement this model of drug decriminalization and a focus instead on helping people that need help with drug abuse? Um, instead of focusing on the jail and retribution part. And it is really just hard to think about trying to implement that in any country. Uh, maybe Canada might be, be the next step, but um, think about it. We don't even think about all drugs equally, right? There's still good drugs and bad drugs, right? Okay, We finally come to a place where like cannabis might be a good drug because it might have some medical properties and people can't die from it. So it's, it's not a bad drug. Right? But it on the same page it's really hard for people to wrap their head around that things like methamphetamine should be legal. Should heroin be legal? Well, or should only safe, happy, you know, non-synthetic drugs like magic mushrooms be legal, right? So are we still putting a value system on drugs, what people how people choose to change their alter their perception? how people choose to reduce stress we're still putting value labels on that so we still have a very complicated system we've you know, is one that of a big, problem
1: because yeah. it has to be all or nothing you can't set a line
0: yeah you know we have conversations with a lot of a lot of smart people and there are some people that believe that going about drug decriminalization um by single drug uh, is a bad thing, right? So the goal, like the most ambitious goal out there is, okay, we legalize cannabis. So now we go on a big education campaign and we tell them, well, if cannabis uh, was wrong to have that as a drug, let's just get rid of all the drug schedules and just let, let's make all the drugs legal. Which I think is too ambitious. It's yeah, unfortunately, I just don't feel like in America, we would be voting to legalize methamphetamine and heroin any day soon. I do not think that's gonna happen which is why, you know, one of the things where I'm working with just trying to decriminalize a single drug, which is magic mushrooms, because I believe the access to that drug will actually seriously help people that are struggling with anxiety, depression, PTSD, and other issues. And they won't reach for those substances if they think that they're criminal. And we've seen that with Canvas, where um, the legal access makes people rethink, um, you know, being able to use those substances. But, um, you know, I think they were a long time from uh, making all drugs legal. And, you know, even in this context, you know, Portugal is not the United States. It's a different size country. The government's different. Um, And one of the keys to success there was that they had free drug rehabilitation rehabilitation centers. In the United States, drug rehab costs so much money. In fact, it costs so much money that it's cheaper to be, stay an addict than to get clean in this country. And I think that's a huge issue. So I think that we have a lot of things that we need to work out in the healthcare system, including uh, reducing the cost of substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment before we could ever tackle something like that. But I do think a priority is getting people out of jail for a minor drug possession, um, and especially for cannabis possession. I don't understand how we have thirty states where cannabis is legal and we still have people in jail for cannabis crimes. It does not make any sense to me, um, and I you know applaud states where when they legalize, they put in the law that. People that were in jail for cannabis-related crimes were going to be automatically released.
1: I feel like if I was in that position, I would open up a class action lawsuit against the U.S. government because it's <laughs> yeah. hypocritical.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, the number of things that are hypocritical, in fact, you know, just cannabis being Schedule 1 when the United States has a patent on it. They have a 507 patent. They actually patented cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. They're the holder, not, not a business. The United States government is the holder of the cat. Uh, the cannabis as a neuroprotective patent. And so how can you have it as a patent saying that is has medical benefits, and then say it's schedule one and has no medical benefits. And in fact, several groups have continued to try to sue and take off cannabis off the schedule. And they've lost each and every time because who's listening, who's controlling those hearings, it's the government. So the government's like, yeah, we're lying. Okay, (laughs) bye bye, like lawsuit dismissed. It's Um, it's very frustrating. And, you know, our healthcare system has issues, our government has issues, our FDA is completely our Food and Drug Administration is completely controlled by pharmaceutical, you know, uh, execs and interests. And it's not here to protect uh, the botanical medicine market, the nutraceutical market, etc or human health in any way. So we have some, I think, really, really deep structural issues, you know, with how uh, healthcare and and our government in general is running. I mean, you look at the United States, like things like childbirth, for example, we're one of the countries that has the highest rate of mothers dying during childbirth. That doesn't make any sense for a developed country. We have all these other statistics where we're the worst. We're like literally like in the top five of of you know, countries for different rates of health issues that shouldn't be happening in a first world country. So, you know, um, well, I would love to see that we we're proactive and we're the first countries to really tackle drug reform. Um, it's so hard. I've traveled in so many states and there's some states where you know that they'll never pass cannabis legalization by choice there. i've never ever. The, the only way that'll happen is if it happens on a federal level, because these states just have really, really conservative views, and you know are not there to help their their citizens. So it's frustrating when you you know the facts, and you you know that there's nothing you can do for a state.
1: Those are the same states that are getting left behind in just about everything else as well.
0: Yeah, you know I don't want to see anyone left behind. That's you know not the goal, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a big heart, but you got to realize what you can and can you can and cannot accomplish in your lifetime and with the resources you have, and and that's been a hard issue. You know, the cannabis legalization and other drug legalization movements haven't had the resources that say a pharmaceutical company has or other big lobbying groups have. Um, is that
1: change, is that changing now that big players are joining?
0: I think that there are you know there's some funds going in, but it's still a huge machine. I mean, if you look dollar for dollar, the pharma lobby versus a pharma lobby, plus alcohol lobby, plus the current lobby, plus, you know, versus the drug decriminalization lobby. It's, it's you know, it's pennies.
1: <laughs> what if those companies start to buy the cannabis company? So let's say Coke start, wants to buy XYZ mm-hmm. light up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Then it starts well, to get interesting?
0: I don't think it gets interesting in terms of uh, drug legalization or de- decriminalization. So most of the big companies, especially even the ones that are now listed on the stock markets both in the United States and Canada have never put any dollars into lobbying um for social justice reform so they would they wouldn't be pushing say laws or lines and laws that would release people from prison that cuz it doesn't do anything to their bottom line they don't care if somebody's in jail for some joints that doesn't they, they weren't going to buy their products anyways you know they're not uh, as social justice focused as other companies are and so we were excited when we saw all these big players and investors coming into the market, but they weren't investing in the uh, corporate social responsibility part of it. So that was a little frustrating, <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, uh, great work has been done on uh, little dollars. It just really takes, you know, a lot of a lot of work. And, and unfortunately, in the United States, we're a little burnt out right now. <laughs> you know, it's hard for us to see all the work that we've been doing for years. And we thought we were ahead. like in 1996, California legalized medical marijuana. And we just legalized recreational marijuana. But then Canada, you know, in two years was like, we just legalized everything, you know, it was, it was so easy for them. And it's really hard for us to see all that work, you know, we're still gonna be fighting this fight, I think, for five to 10 years, although, you know, there's, little smatterings of, you know, using cannabis legalization as almost like a political weapon or, you know, way to increase popularity in the polls or things like that. So when it may be deployed uh, sooner than later for, you know, a political strategy, you know, we're still not sure it'll end up the way that we're hoping it will. So, you know, we don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. Like this has been the most confusing, like couple of years in the United States ever. We don't know whether it'll be legal. We don't know with legalization, if it is rolled out in two to three years, it's going to be beneficial. We don't know whether it'll become pharmaceutical. You know, we don't under, We don't quite understand what, what is going to be happening, and it's really hard to try to change laws and anticipate what this will look like because it's not very straightforward here.
1: One of the things that is typical of consumers, technology, and products is once people have something that they previously considered a luxury, once they've had it for even a short amount of time, mm-hmm. it becomes a necessity. So it's the kind of thing that you can't take away. That I mean, the prohibition movement showed that pretty easily, but you could say that with a lot of things so i think going backwards regardless of what old white men in congress say i think that would be very very challenging to do
0: well the black market is alive and thriving in every single state even where it's been legalized and i know um, i lived in colorado for a bit and that was one of the things that they really didn't like but it's really hard because you can grow a plant in your backyard and i know that some states have tried to uh block uh patients rights to grow plants but it's just crazy it's you have to have both. It's not like saying, um, you know, only ketchup is illegal. If you grow tomatoes in your backyard, you're breaking the law. (laughs) When you can grow a plant, it just doesn't make sense. So I think that drug decriminalization, in addition to legalization, is really important. I I also fear um, a legalization movement where silly things are used to fine people or Cause issues like, for example, in Nevada, where they legalize both medical and recreational marijuana, they actually fine people. I think six hundred dollars for smoking in public. So that's a huge fine for someone. Um, you know, that's a fine that might, you know, they might be oh charged with misdemeanor and not be able to pay that or afford that, right? And that that fine actually didn't exist before legalization. So literally, these legalization bills have these things that are added onto it as you know, like little bonuses to the police forces and the government. They're like, well, we're gonna kill cash cow for some of these things. So we've got to throw in these bonuses to get you money. It's just, there's a lot of dirty politics in play for that. And, you know, I just hope everything goes right in the future.
1: I hope they're finding the traditional smokers as well, because they're much worse.
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's so crazy that we don't even think about alcohol, you know, as a dangerous drug that's killing people, causing auto accidents and this and that. And clearly, it's the most harmful drug in the United States. But you know, all the focus, it's so crazy. So I actually made a cannabis and motherhood course. And I'm probably going to be as I have in the past been a very controversial person. But creating educational content for doctors and mothers around using CBD and cannabis during breastfeeding and pregnancy and labor is like probably as controversial as you can get right now. Um, you know, it's funny that we allow mothers to use alcohol during pregnancy and breastfeeding and there's no issue. Also, cigarette smoking is completely fine, even though we know that there is significant harms with those things. But then all the standard issued Uh, Recommendations for doctors and, and legislation is that women that are using cannabis shouldn't breastfeed or, you know, they should be recommended to rehab centers or they should be reported to child protective services because not because it's dangerous, but because it's a schedule one drug. So there's still these things that don't make sense in the United States, where we have cannabis legal everywhere, but it's not legal if you're a woman of childbearing age, or you could become pregnant. And in fact, even some states have been trying to do things like test women, give them pregnancy tests before they can get a medical marijuana card. Like there, there's just a lot of just weird idiosyncrasies, you know, happening. And you know, part of my work as somebody who founded a, a nonprofit on cannabis and women's health is really identifying the legal challenges and understanding carb reduction approaches for women of any age uh, when they're using cannabis, but it still can be a very dangerous place for a mother, you know, whether they're pregnant, whether they're just a parent in the United States using cannabis. So there's so many things to this where from the social justice, Justice this aspect to you the fact that women are getting their children taken away just because mommy has fibromyalgia and she uses a joint every once in a while, but somebody, you know, said that she's a bad mom, so she gets her child taken away. These are things that happen in the United States. So we have so much to do here, and I'm hoping that, you know, the Canadian market being legal, that you're going to work out some of these social stigma issues, some of these legal issues, be able to prove, you know, definitively that these approaches that we're doing in the United States are harmful, wrong, just, just a violation of rights here.
1: Canada is a hundred X more effective country. I when when I explain it to people, we lived there for six months. I say it's the U S without all the bullshit. If you get rid
0: of
1: almost all of of the political, personal problems, the crime, just about everything that that's Canada and they're friendly. Yeah, uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I agree. And it was funny. I'm looking at the different um, statements about like, the medical associations and the government, like our government will actually say things like in the uh, medical instructions, like dealing with mothers that are using cannabis, and it's like, report them, report them. But like, <laughs> even if there's nothing wrong, report them, like it just focus on making sure that they went like, to jail. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. And in the Canadian model, um, and for sure, they are like, well, we really don't have enough research to know whether it's bad or good. And so we need more research and education and don't scare mothers. And it's like, oh, Canada. <laughs> like. (laughs) You know, a focus on health and education as opposed to punishment, who knew, who knew that's actually what healthcare should be about, not punishing people, but uh, that's what we do here in the United States. We punish you and then we bill you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There's more more money in that. I want to transition now. What other areas or technologies are you most excited about and why?
0: Oh my goodness. Um, of course, AI is just exciting um, for all the healthcare possibilities, as I said, um, its application for cannabinoid medicine is insane, because we have this plant with 400 chemicals. And I just think that we're going to be able to harness this, this to not only treat disease, you know, from Alzheimer's and epilepsy and this and that, but to actually being able to prevent cancer. I think that's a real thing because we all have cancer genes. And I think that there are different combinations of cannabinoids that can help freeze cancer in each of us. For example, uh, raw uh, THC, so the THC-A that's actually made in the plant uh, before you heat up cannabis, that's actually been proven to prevent the spread of cancer cells. And we all have cancer cells. So I think that we're going to get to a point where we're going to be able to extend human life. And that part is coming fast. The part that scares me is like technology is exciting, but it's also scary because... We're not deploying technology, we're not deploying modern medicine at the same rate for all aspects of, uh, you know, all citizens, right? I don't want to see some of these changes in healthcare and some of these advancements where only the rich get to prevent cancer, right? Only rich get these treatments and everyone else has to suffer with cancer treatments and chemotherapy and things like that. So I think that ethical application of AI and some of these technologies is going to be so important. And I think these are the conversations we're not really having. Is it right to only have the one or five percent be able to have access to completely life-extending, you know, technologies? I think that's something that we're really going to have to be faced with probably in the next ten to fifteen years.
1: The U.S. has pretty much just opted for a market-based solution. If the market decides on it, then it is God chosen.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a it's a hard thing. And, you know, I just, it's one of those things, even with cannabis, right, like with cannabis legalization, I think that it has so much power to actually improve economies, you know, where hemp is growing, where cannabis is growing, there's going to be a huge economic booms. And the countries that don't have access to that are going to be hurt, um, you know, from an economic standpoint, from a healthcare standpoint. So I think that, you know, we have to really face, um, so, you know, equality and, the economic equality issues throughout the world. And I don't know how we're going to come to that kind of solution. I think that it's really going to take a lot more... Psychedelics. It was, yeah. Yeah. It, psychedelics, yes. Um, but it definitely is not going to take nationalism to, to make this work. So uh, we, the U.S. just needs to uh, pause and I can come back to the conversation in uh, two to four years. <laughs>
1: That's basically what we're doing right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Every, everything is a bit on pause. So I know you wrote a book, something on training your brain to be thin, and I was curious about the neuroscience and some more interesting neuroscience tips, tricks, hacks, etc. That most people don't know.
0: You know, that actually wasn't so much of a neuroscience Facebook. <laughs> I wrote that six years ago um, with another partner, so it was very much more on you know talking about habit formation. And you know, these are mostly I think tricks everyone knows by now. <laughs> they were probably weren't that well known uh, back in the day. But the fact that you need, really need to stick to habits like uh, dieting or uh, lifestyle changes for three weeks before you can actually
1: uh, form those
0: neural networks. Well, I mean, you have to strengthen the connections between your brain cells. So it's all about repetition. (laughs) So you have these brain cells, and they're talking to each other. And in order for them to form permanent connections with each other, it has to have multiple releases of those neurotransmitters. And so if you're having you're doing the same thing, whether you're meditating, or you know, you're having portion control, you're whatever you're doing, if you're doing the same thing, repetitively, it will become a habit after several weeks, it's not, you know, you're not going to have, you know, solid change by working out, you know, once every Oh, seven days uh, for two weeks, right? We have to do things as, on a repetitive basis for us to form the neural pathways to have stable change. And I think, you know, the exception to that is if you use an accelerator, <laughs> and of course, when we were talking about psychedelics, right, you can, I think, actually have life-changing connections in your brain. And that's what LSD does. That's what uh, psilocybin does. It actually changes your neural pathways in couple minutes or hours. But if you're going to do it the slow, old-fashioned way, uh, you're going to have to do repetition and go through some of the hard work. So, you know, it's just funny because I would say that training, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to train your brain and, uh, <laughs> you know, going on the, the treadmill for three weeks is probably not the funnest way to do
1: it. The best metaphor I've heard is that your mind is like a hill covered in snow. Mm-hmm. You go down the sled and the more times you go down, the deeper the, the, deeper the treads get. So, if you mm-hmm. try to get out of that, it's really hard to change direction.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree.
1: (laughs) So what, let's see, what's something that you're interested in today that's unconventional, that's unexpected, that's contrarian?
0: Mm. Goodness. Um, I mean, (laughs) I've always just felt like on the fringe. I mean, I think again, that the work that I'm doing with cannabis um, and pregnant mothers is really on the fringe. I still get a lot of like death threat emails and everything from that, from basically being called like a drug dealer to pregnant women and uh, destroying baby brains and things like that. But I think that the potential really, and I I don't even know whether this is on the fringe, but uh, one of the things that we were not really talking a lot about is the Me Too movement. And what are we going to do about all these traumatized women and men um, that have suffered from sexual assault and like microaggression and micro traumas, right? So we're acknowledging right now that everyone is in pain. Everyone has had some kind of fucked up life and, you know, we're not getting the mental health treatment. We're clearly, we haven't gotten, you know, rid of all of our baggage and our issues. So what are we going to do about it? And I think that it's really important for us to harness the psychedelic movement right now and talk about it, especially as a treatment for trauma uh, for women. I think that, you know, we've embraced cannabis right now. um, And I think that a lot of women don't know that. At mushrooms can be a treatment for depression, whether it's uh, you know a single dose or microdosing. I think microdosing is really the solution for a lot of things right now, and I don't think that's a popular opinion because people again don't are fearful when we don't have the research, and there's not a lot of research on microdosing. There are some studies that are now coming on board, finally. Thank goodness. But you know, when we look at the embracing of every single antidepressant out there, and how they don't actually work, and how they increase suicidal risk, and we look at the potential harms of microdosing, say. You know, 0.5 grams of uh, magic mushrooms, there really aren't any harms associated with it. As far as we know, it's not even the psychoactive dose. And the anecdotal evidence suggests that it's very, very helpful for people that it actually does regulate the serotonin levels, that it actually does grow, you know, uh, neuron branches in the brain and helps people heal and helps people get over, you know, it without even all the psychotherapy just helps them break through these habits that are very negative, uh, whether it's rumination, whether it's being held back uh, from being able to try new things, I think that microdosing psychedelics is really something that we need to like implement now. I don't even care if it's legal. Like we need to implement it now. We need to figure it out and put those structures in place before legalization happens because, you know, cannabis was in the black market for so long, right? And we wouldn't be where we are today unless there was already, you know, work that had been done beforehand. So, I think that that psychedelic skin are going to be the next biggest thing in terms of mental health treatment. And we need to embrace it and encourage awareness of it as soon as possible.
1: Not just mental health, but performance enhancing. What percentage of Silicon Valley do you think is microdosing these days?
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you know, I don't live in Silicon Valley, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's probably over 90%.
1: <laughs> I hear a lot of stories. So I, we had Joe Haldeman on the program and he's a yeah. uh, he's a famed uh, sci-fi author. He wrote The Forever War, a bunch of other Mm -hmm. stuff. But he was saying something to the effect of, look at all the great works of art throughout history, whether it be film, whether it be books, whether it be statues. What percentage of those do you think that the creators were on some combination of substances, we'll say? Nicotine, Mm -hmm. caffeine, alcohol, cocaine, Mm -hmm. LSD, mushrooms. If you think about it, I would say probably a majority of the great things that have been invented in history have had some combination of those. Those.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm gonna share with you a sort of funny story. So I I did most of my PhD actually um, on cocaine addiction. I actually used rodent models um, where they had little IV uh, catheters in their jugular vein and they pressed little levers for drugs in an operant box. And it was sort of funny. So I had uh, the night shift of these boxes because you put these animals in there for four hours a time. So there was a limited amount of these boxes. Everyone's sharing them. So like I got, as a graduate student, like the worst lot. So I'm like doing the graveyard shift uh, in the middle of the night with these rats and they're all, you know, on cocaine, and I'm like preparing the cocaine solutions and everything. Like I'm like literally like covered in cocaine, and I had never used drugs or anything. But like, I had so much energy, and I was so excited to go to my job every day. And then, you know, I graduated and stopped doing that. And I was like, I think I was on cocaine the whole time that I did my PhD, because I was like, I'm not awake anymore. Like, it's like, how does one like work at like 4am in the morning? It was just hilarious. I was, I was laughing. I like wasn't, you know, like inhaling cocaine, but it's like when you're making saline solutions, and things like you're
1: that. Accidentally, so, you're accidentally, you're yeah, accidentally killing yeah, a good. You've got to be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it was sort of funny. So I was like, well, that was an interesting energy doing <laughs> I've I've heard other hilarious stories like that from drug addiction researchers. But you know, it's it's just funny. We've all 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 people use something to get them through the day, right? And it's that judgment, you know, is if you look actually at, you know, the pharmacology of it, say downing four energy drinks can be similar to a high for methamphetamine. So it's all about your dosage and and how you're using the products and what your intent is, right? Just because something is legal, it can be still be abused and be unsafe for somebody. So I think that, you know, less judgment about how we get through our day, whether it's to inspire creativity, whether it's to have focus, you know, we just need less judgment judgment in general and more harm reduction.
1: If you don't want people judging you, you probably shouldn't judge them. I'm not going to say I'm the best at this. I'm not going (laughs) to say most people are good at this, but it is what it is and uh we can all do a little bit better michelle one last thing if you were going to leave people with one thing a quote a call to action something we haven't talked about yet what would it be and
0: why oh goodness (laughs) Uh, yeah no pressure um well i do have a tattoo on my leg um it's in french it's actually in, in memory of my little brother who passed away actually um from oxycontin alcohol in college and it says live for the moment in French. And I would encourage everyone, even if you have to write it down on your wrist to you know, take one risk, to do something you wouldn't do, do something that scares you every single day uh, for a year and you will have the best year of your life. And in fact, I did that. Please. Do something that scares you. It can be something small. Do something that scares you because what scares you is what you should be doing. Always get out of your comfort zone and live your best life.
1: The comfort zone challenge is something yes. that's incredibly beneficial. I did it. My wife got me to do it. There were some interesting things. You wear underwear on the outside of your clothes and walk backwards. It makes mm, you really
0: not that one. <laughs> It
1: makes you much more comfortable in your skin and willing yeah. to do anything, which is great for entrepreneurs, creators. you got to be able to take chances. Michelle, this has been fun. You're an awesome person. Where's the best place for people to find you?
0: Sure. You can find me at drmichelleross.com So that's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-E-R-O-S-S.com.
1: And we will have links and all the good stuff in the show notes, guys. Fringe.fm. Just search for Michelle. Search for Cannabis search for anything that sounds interesting and you will find her. Thanks for coming today, guys. And thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Thank you.
1: If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.